Jesus gonna be here He's gonna be here soon those songs. Come on. Good morning, everyone. There it is. All right. Now I know you're here with me. Well, it is a, uh, it's a true joy to, uh, to be able to be bringing God's word to you this morning and having the, the spirit unpack what it is he wants for each one of us, uh, including myself as, as I stand up here and share uh, my prayers that I'm listening as well to the spirit as he teaches and speaks through his word. Uh, that's what I'm relying on is his word this morning. Uh, and as we're tuning into our, our mixtape passage this morning, it's in the book of Philippians chapter four. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter four, and we're going to be reading uh, verses six through eight. Uh, if you have the church Bible that's in the pew there in front of you, it would be on page 953, 953. So we're going to read this uh, together, and uh, let's just see what the Lord has for us. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So when I, I read this passage right away, uh, this word rejoice sticks out to me. And another word for rejoice can be delight, the word delight. And uh, when I think of delight, it makes me think of um, April 28, 2012. And this is when I got to um, marry my beautiful, and there she is, this is on her wedding day, uh, my beautiful wife and, and uh but this picture, it, it doesn't just remind me of the, the, you know, the feelings, the, the happy and the excited feelings I had to, to marry her. Uh, it reminds me of the delight that I took, that I take in this woman of God. You see, um, what she represents, what, why I'm bringing her up this morning is because um, she embodies what I think Paul is talking about in this passage uh, in delighting in the Lord. Uh, so one, one of the, the situations where I just remember when we were dating and engaged, uh, I, can't remember, I think we were just dating at that point, and we were at her parents' house, and they have a big family and a big house, but we we're all kind of hanging out in the living room together, and I forget what was going on. There's just so much chaos sometimes in big families. Anybody from big families? 
okay? So you get it. And maybe from small families, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's chaos when you go to a big family. Um, and so we're, we're there hanging out. And I just remember, I don't know, we had like, I was, I was holding her, I giving her a hug. And I remember looking into her eyes. And I remember in that moment, and I can picture it so vividly even to this day. I remember looking into her eyes and just feeling and knowing and sensing this true delight into the person that I was holding. Just this true delight, this true joy in who I was holding in that moment. And it's like, when I was looking into her eyes, I, I, I could, in this really weird way, I could almost like see down into who she was, her very soul, and my soul was just smiling because it was delighting in who she was. That's delight. It's, it's taking this delight in this person that God had, has blessed me with to journey in marriage with. And Paul, as he's talking about um, delight in this, uh, in this Philippians passage, this morning we're looking at answering the question, what is Christian joy? What is the cause of true Christian delight in our life? And so, uh, again, I share all of this because um, I really believe my, my wife embodies this, and I'll share a little bit more later about it. But the whole book of Philippians, as I was kind of going through, preparing for the message this morning, um, it's amazing to see how the whole book of Philippians is just all bound together, kind of bringing out this answer of what is the cause of true Christian joy. And so I'm trusting that as we dig into this this morning, that God's gonna be revealing some awesome things for you. So if you would just pray with me as we dig into his word together. God, thank you for, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your word that we can stand upon, that we can learn from. And I pray that in these moments, God, that you would um, show us exactly what it is that you want for us this morning. That you would clear our hearts, you would clear our minds. God, we may be struggling with anxieties and, and stuff from home, stuff from work, stuff with family, stuff with kids. There may be a lot going on, but I pray in this moment that you would create space for us to hear your voice speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna look at the cause of true Christian joy. And here's the deal. True Christian joy comes when we find contentment in the person of Jesus and a commitment to advancing the cause of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. True Christian joy, that's what we're looking at. That, that's what I believe Paul kind of lays out is we find true Christian joy when we are content in the person of Jesus and we're committed to advancing the cause of Jesus. And so, again, throughout the book of Philippians, Paul is constantly calling his church in Philippi to rejoice. It's all over the place. Rejoice, take joy, rejoice, 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 take joy. It's like Paul is on this rejoice train and he wants everyone to jump on board because he has so many reasons for them to be rejoicing. He has so many reasons for them to be rejoicing. 
And I want us to, as our church here this morning, look into Philippians to see why in the world Paul constantly is calling his church in Philippi to rejoice. So here's one of them. It's found in Philippians 1, uh, starting in verse 11. And it says this. I'm I'm actually gonna start in verse nine. And this is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, This focus of this righteousness found in Christ is also um, laid out in chapter three, verses three through eight, and you can look at that um, a different time, but there's there's just two spots in particular where Paul lays out that, look, Church, you need to rejoice. You have a cause to take delight in Jesus because of the righteousness that he has secured on your behalf. This is something to delight in. This is something to rejoice in. And here's why Paul makes this such a big deal, because he is this perfect example of somebody who has come from a a place of, of works and of law. He was this perfect uh, Pharisee man who was abiding by all of the law, and if any righteousness would come, you know, for a person, it was by the law and following the works of the law. And Paul's saying, look, if you have an argument that your righteousness is found in Christian works, is found in the works of following the law, I have a better argument for you. I have the perfect resume um, as a guy who followed these things to the T, and I'm telling you this, that righteousness, true right standing before God is found only in Jesus. Amen? Amen. That should cause us to have true delight in Jesus. When you ask yourself, do I really delight in Christ? Do I really have a joy in Christ? Paul is saying, you do. It's because your righteousness has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. So take joy, church. Rejoice in Christ and the righteousness that he has secured for you apart from your works. You see, Paul, he lived too long in the bondages of works and of the law. He's tired of this. He says there's freedom in Christ. You can live. Your true right standing is found in Jesus. And he says, this is a cause to rejoice and to take delight in your life, church. It's actually a really interesting uh, word that that Paul uses as he's making this argument to the church in Philippi. He says in in, uh, chapter three, he says, "I, I consider all of these things, I consider all of the works I've done and I compare them they're rubbish, they're trash. They're, the word that he actually uses is scubalon. Everyone say scubalon. You guys know Greek, look at you. That's the Greek word that he uses here and it kind of looks like this. This is what Paul's trying to compare it to. I, I mean, he's saying, look, like, you think your Christian works are, they actually look like this. And 
This is so interesting. The word scubalon, in, if, you're, if we're all first century church in Philippi and we're reading this letter from Paul and we're going along, we're reading, and we hit this word scubalon, everyone drops their, their uh, uh, papyrus manuscript and we go, oh my word, Paul, what did you just say? The word scublon is so, uh, it has so much potency and kick, it's almost like a vulgarity to these first century Christians. And Paul uses this word because he wants to make sure that the church gets, he comes back around, he says, listen, your works are like that pile of scublon. They're trash, they're garbage, they're poop, they're nasty, they're disgusting compared to the perfect, righteous standing of Jesus that he has secured for you. That's why Paul's constantly coming back and coming back to rejoice in Christ, rejoice in Jesus and the righteousness he has secured for you. Stop messing around in this filth of works. The second reason, and this is tied very, it's, it's tied together with the righteousness found in Christ. We look at Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and we're not gonna read this whole passage, but this is another reason that we have to rejoice in the person of Jesus, and it's in the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. You see, the righteousness that's offered in Jesus takes this supernatural humility, a humility that none of us could ever demonstrate by ourselves. And Paul spends some time unpacking in chapter two, one through 11, why Christ is to be again treasured and rejoiced in. And here's, this is kind of the summary, right? The first part of that passage is this. Paul is saying, Jesus, who was completely God, reigning in heaven, all powerful, he decided to leave his place of power and come to earth. He decided to leave his place of perfection and glory where he was reigning and ruler of all. He decided to come to earth and he decided to, to limit himself of his godness. He decided to say, I'm not gonna access all of the supernatural, complete sovereign control and power that I have on this earth. I will, however, we know that he did miracles, right? So he accessed some of this supernatural power for one reason, to confirm that he was the son of God, to confirm that he was the Messiah, to confirm that, he, that, that all of these prophecies that were foretold about him, the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, he demonstrated some of his God power to fulfill all of those prophecies to make the case that he is the son of God and that he is the way and the truth and the life. But in humility, he left his place of power, he limited himself and came down to earth to confirm that he was the son of God, to make a way for us to be in a relationship with him forever. Along with this though, he, he limits his power, he comes to earth and he doesn't just come to earth as, as, a, as a grown person Right? He doesn't come to earth as, as an adult who can take care of himself. He comes to earth in the form of the most helpless possible being in the form of a baby who needs to be taken care of, who can't do anything for themselves. 
who's uh, innocent and, and constantly needing uh, care. And then, and then he was trusting himself to two fallen, you know, earthly parents, young, young parents who were gonna raise him up. The humility that Christ shows is amazing. And, and here's the greatest thing. In John 10, 17 through 18, we see that Jesus doesn't just express a humility, he expresses a willing humility. Look at this. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own free will. Jesus isn't forced to come down. He wasn't kicked out of heaven and saying, you gotta go do this or else. He willingly gets off of his throne and comes to the to the earth in form of a baby, a helpless child, dependent. This, this is a supernatural humility. This is the type of humility that is required to secure our righteousness that we can do by ourselves. Paul is saying, church, take delight in this. Take delight in the humility and in the righteousness of Christ. Because you couldn't do it on your own, church. You couldn't do this. You, there's no possible way, and you could try and try and try to be humble and, and lay down your life, but in some form, it was going to be, it was gonna fall short. And that's, church, why we need Christ and his humility to do this for us. So rejoice and take delight in that. Our true Christian joy, our joy, our delight in life comes from finding a contentment, a, a delight in the person of Jesus and the righteousness and the humility that he shows and that he secures for us. And secondly, we find joy, church Paul makes the argument that the church finds joy in advancing the cause of Jesus and the cause of the gospel. They, they find a joy in being committed to advancing this cause. Let's look back at Philippians 4. So he says, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in Christ, rejoice in the righteousness of Christ, rejoice in the humility of Christ always. And I will say it again, rejoice church. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I love that little line that Paul throws in there. He's talking about rejoicing and Christ and righteousness. And, but then he says, the Lord is near. And this is why I think Paul throws this in there, that he's constantly reminding the church of their role in God's master plan. It's a call to action. Paul's saying, hey, get ready, church. Hey, this stuff matters, church. Christ is coming back. Let's do something about what you're hearing. Let's go. It's a, it's a battle cry to what Paul and is teaching here. See, he says this because in uh, Philippians 2, 21, it says, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? How often do we get caught up in our own interests? And I'm gonna raise my hand as being the first one. 
Because it is so easy, so easy to pull out your phone or you got your calendar, or you got your to-do list at home, you got kids, you got, and all of this is good. But all of a sudden, our interests and our priorities and our schedules and our agendas and everything that we think is right and meaningful and good and important, all of a sudden, this list gets super long. And it all goes before Jesus and the mission of Christ. And we justify things. We say, oh, well, you know, it's my kids, it's my family. Oh, well, I have to earn money. Oh, I, I, well, it's the church. I'm serving, you know, in six different ministries at church. I mean, I'm I'm helping the church, right? I'll tell you what. I mean, we love people serving. And we need people serving. But I think even sometimes we as Christians can have great hearts and we want to serve, but we are putting church above loving Jesus and spending time with Jesus and, and advancing the cause of Jesus. We get too busy. And, and, and that starts to become, as Paul says, we, we get our own interests in mind. We get self-focused and it becomes about us. And he's saying, look, there are many who have all of these other interests besides advancing the cause of Christ. But he says, the Lord is near. Jesus is coming again. Jesus, the one who who bought your salvation. Jesus, the one who got down from heaven and came to earth and secured your righteousness. This Jesus, he's coming again and he's given us a mission, church. What are we doing about this? Let's go, let's do something. Stop worrying about your own interests. And Paul says, worry about the interests of others. Because Jesus is coming again. And the question that I have to keep asking myself is, is how do I know that I'm delighting in advancing the cause of Jesus, right? I mean, so, I, so I'm challenged with myself, okay, I have all of these lists of things, you, know, I'm, you, you got your list of stuff, your, your busyness, your schedules, your interests, all of this good stuff, but how do I know that I'm taking true delight in advancing the cause of Jesus? And I bet the church in Philippi was asking the same question to Paul, and so Paul, I think, answers this for us. He says, this is how you know that you're delighting in being committed to advancing the cause of Jesus. Verse six in chapter four. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, I know I mentioned my wife already. I wanna bring her up one more time. I don't think you can ever talk about your wife too much, right? Guys, amen? Yeah, amen. Um, So, Flashing back to when we were engaged, right? And it, people who just maybe got married, but you, you know, all married people, especially newly married, there's like this chaos in your engagement, right? Of like wedding planning and all these details and things and stresses and all of this stuff, right? 99% of it falls on the girl, 1% falls on the guy. Just let's be honest. Um, so we're driving around, we're, we're, we're going to different places, and, and again, this is a very vivid memory I have. We're in the car, and it's some small decision. It's not venue, it's not who's going to marry us, it's not any of that stuff. It's as small, in my mind, <laughs> I 
in my, my mind, small decision, not a big deal. So as she's talking about this, um, you, know, she, you know, we need to make this decision. And she says, well, we just need to pray about it. And again, in my mind, I'm going small decision. This doesn't need prayer, right? We don't need to fast. We don't need to stop and do a five minute prayer over this. Small decision, let's just make it. For her though, let's pray about it. Let's pray about it. So of course, you know, we prayed about it. This wasn't just though a one-time thing. Celeste is constantly saying, let's pray about it, let's pray about it, let's pray about it. Sometimes I'm like, we don't, okay, let's pray about it, you know? Like she's setting this example of, don't be anxious about anything. If so, if you start to get anxious about something, pray about it, pray about it, pray about it. And the crucial part of this prayer is not just pray about it, but pray about it, Paul says, with what? I think that one person said it. Pray about it with what? Thanksgiving. So many times we leave that out of our prayer. We wanna pray about it, we start to pray about it. God, would, I'm just stressed with my boss at work right now. I'm stressed with my kids at home right now. I'm stressed with this. God, I'm struggling with this health ailment. God, please heal me, please help me. Please give me wisdom on what I should do. Help, help me, help me, heal me. Help me, help me, heal me. And where's the word thanksgiving in any of that? Paul says, God wants to hear that with thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving, I believe, is where, that, where we express this dependence, this full trust in God in our prayers. We say, God, I'm fully depending on you right now because I am thankful that you've allowed me to, to be in this situation. I'm thankful for this situation. I'm thankful that my kids are sick right now. I'm thankful that I'm struggling at my work. I'm thankful that, that I'm, I'm struggling with church stuff. I'm thankful that my marriage is struggling right now. And you all are going, what? what? That's not right. Being thankful is acknowledging before God, saying, God, you are completely in control. And clearly in your sovereignty, way above where I am, you deem it good and necessary for me to be going through these things so that I can depend on who? Who? Jesus. That I can depend on the righteousness of Christ, that I can depend on the power of Christ, that I can depend on the humility of Christ, that I can depend on Jesus. Because why in the world would we want to become dependent on ourselves? We know what it looks like, right? Doesn't look very good. That's Paul's argument. He's saying, with thanksgiving, depend on Jesus. When you say, thank you, Lord, for these hardships, thank you for these struggles, we're saying, I depend on you, Jesus. I trust in you for this. Now help me, because I got nothing. And oh, is our delight in Christ so much more when we are thankful. That is true Christian joy, when we are delighting to that level. And Paul goes on and he lays out more of what does a delighted life look like as we look to advance the cause of Jesus? Verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, 
whatever is true. Let's just stop there. Whatever is true. As Christians, and, and for Paul in his culture, he was calling the church to focus on truth and not the lies of culture. Okay, the lies of his culture were this. Works equals right standing before God. That was the lie that he was focusing on primarily with the church. Your works equals right standing before God. He's saying, don't focus on that. I've been writing to you now this whole letter about not focusing on that. Focus on truth. How is it any different in our culture today? There are so many sources of lies and deception that we as Christians have to navigate together and call back to the authority and the truth of God's word. But here's where I think that we need to focus on is that as a Christian church, I'm not sure, we don't struggle with the same uh, specific works Christian works that the the first century church struggled with because they were worried about circumcision and they were worried about some other stuff, sacrifices. We don't worry about that today. But I think we worry still about our Christian works. I still think we struggle with believing that somehow what we do or what we don't do affects how much God loves us. And that's a lie. The truth is, is that Christ came down and purchased salvation. And when we have faith in Jesus, that's it. He loves us. He's committed to us. He's faithful. He forgives. He extends grace and truth and mercy and righteousness. It doesn't matter how many ministries you're serving in the church. It doesn't matter how many hours you give. It doesn't matter those things. Paul's saying, that's deception, The truth is, is Christ is your righteousness alone. Don't worry about works. Don't worry about whether you messed up a hundred times in a row or you continued to to, uh, be impatient with your kids or your spouse. Don't worry about that. Worry Worry about worshiping Jesus. Worry about, am I delighting in Christ? Because I guarantee you that the more we delight in Jesus, the more our lives are gonna look like Christ. We don't worry about, oh, I, I, I have to do something to change my behavior. No, that is of the world and deception. Christ is what we need. Paul continues and he says, look, you need to focus on respect, living to love people in a commendable way or an excellent way. Paul appeals to this couple in the church in uh, four verses two to agree in the Lord. There's obviously some conflict going on in church leadership. Boy, that never happens today, right? Never. There's never conflict in the church. Amen, church? It's okay to have conflict. Paul isn't saying never fight with each other, never disagree with each other, right? He's not saying that. He's saying there's obviously a conflict. Now look how you deal with it. Deal with it in a respectful way, in a loving way, in a commendable way. Here's this word commendable, with an excellent way. People from the outside, if we're committed to advancing the cause of Jesus and we're taking delight in this, the way that we deal with each other in the church will have a significant impact on how other people view Jesus. This isn't about us. How you deal with one another in the church is not about you. It's not about making the Grove Church look good. It's about making Jesus look good to the lost people, amen? That's why it's so important that when we have conflicts in the church, that's okay, that's okay. How are you dealing with it? 
you gonna hold grudges against each other? Well, that person hasn't forgiven me. They haven't come to me. I'm not going to them. What are we, sixth grade? Deal with one another in a loving and a respectful way that the outside world can, can commend, can say, wow, look how they deal with each other. They don't deal with each other like the world deals with, with each other. They deal with each other in a way that points them to Jesus. Paul's saying that's what we need to focus on. If you're living to advance the cause of Jesus, that's how we're gonna treat one another when we have conflict. And we should be okay holding each other accountable to that. Not because somebody has it better or, or is in a better position, it's because we're all committed to making Jesus known to those outside the church. <clears throat> Paul goes on, focus on living with excellence, worthy of praise. He's saying focus on living a life of excellence, worthy of praise. Here's what I think he's talking about. If we're looking at Paul's life and his example, I believe he's talking about suffering and hardship. I really do. If we're looking at the book of Philippians, there's multiple times, and here, here are the passages. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also suffer for him. Next one. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as scubalon. My aim is to know him, to know, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. To live in an excellent way, to live in a commendable way, is not to somehow create this life of, of prosperity and happiness and, and value and all, we feel good about ourselves and the world can pat us on the back for that. Instead, Paul's saying, if you wanna live an excellent life, if you wanna live a life that's advancing the cause of Jesus, here's what it's gonna look like. There's gonna be suffering and hardship and persecution. And that is an excellent way. That's a good way to live, he's saying, church. Live this way. Here's an example of this. This fall, the Supreme Court's gonna be ruling on the 2012 case of the Christian cake maker. Anybody remember this in Colorado? They're gonna be ruling this fall finally on that. Christian cake maker, homosexual couple comes to him and says, please make us a cake for our wedding. And he respectfully, notice the word respectfully, right? We just got done talking about this. Respectfully, lovingly, just declines. And now all of a sudden he's brought to court and he's in this big legal thing. And socially, I mean, he's destroyed, right? I mean, people hate him because they thought that he was hating this couple because he said no. But all this man was doing was staying committed to the biblical teachings of marriage and of Jesus. Read this quote. They said, you have to create cakes for same-sex couples, so he removed himself from the market. He chose to stop making wedding cakes. He chose to stop making, he, he had to make a decision. Do I continue to make cakes and, and oblige to this, or do I just give it all up in this time because I'm so convinced of the truth and the message of the gospel that I'm gonna just set it aside, I'm gonna stop. He suffered, and I think us Americans, we, 
You don't see people, American Christians, being brought out in the street and beaten with rods and whips or thrown in prison. That doesn't happen in America. That happened back then in Paul's day, right? That happens overseas to our brothers and sisters in different countries right now. In America, we suffer socially. There's social persecution. This man, this cake maker, has, has been persecuted socially. And I'm sorry to say, but it's sad when I think we're more worried about our social persecution than our physical persecution. How convinced are we that the gospel is the real deal and that Jesus alone is the best thing ever? What, what strides will we make? What depths will we go to make sure that that is known in the world? And are we willing to give it all up? Is Jesus that good? And Paul says, rejoice. Take delight in this type of life. Smile, laugh, chat it up when all hell breaks loose against you and the church because you are so content and delighted in the person of Christ and advancing the cause of Christ, you're, you're so delighted and content in that that when all hell breaks, breaks loose against you, you can just rejoice. Praise God. Jesus is being made known amongst us. Who cares that we're getting persecuted? Jesus is being put on display. I'm just gonna wrap up with Paul's prayer in chapter one. He says, I pray this, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight, insight so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We have knowledge we have lots of knowledge. But you have to decide, is Jesus really worth it all? You can, Paul says you can live an amazing life of joy and delight, but you will live it. This will happen when we say, I know, that, I know what Christ did for me, but now I'm gonna choose to trust in what Christ has done for me. And I want others to know what Christ has done for them. And I don't care what gets in between me and that. I'm gonna live my life in that way. And when we start living our lives in that way, Paul says, there's a lot of reasons to rejoice and a lot of reasons to take delight in life when our focus is on that. So as we leave this morning, remember this. The Lord is near. Jesus is coming. How will we go from this place? Will we delight our, ourselves in Jesus or, or will we remain under the soothing comforts of the world? Jesus left his perfect place in heaven to come down here for us. How are we gonna respond this morning to this mighty King and Savior? God, thank you for your word. God, none of us deserve to hear it. None of us deserve to hear from a holy and righteous and loving God. And yet we're grateful. 
And I pray that your spirit would do works in our lives that would only point to Jesus, that we could live, we could live in true Christian joy because of Jesus and what he has done. In Jesus' name, amen.